the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. J.P. Morgan buys First Republic Bank. Turkey claims to have killed the Islamic State's alleged leader in Syria. Police continue their search for a Texas shooter. The Pope says the Vatican is involved in a secret Russia-Ukraine peace mission. Santiago Peña wins Paraguay's general election. Jordan hosts Arab normalization talks with Syria. UK chip giant Arm files for U.S. share listing. A New York gun buyback program nets over 3,000 firearms. A report claims Epstein met with several high-profile individuals after being convicted. And several European organizations call for research into the health impact of racism. In our top story, J.P. Morgan buys failed First Republic Bank. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, CNBC, BBC News, NBC and Reuters. J.P. Morgan Chase on Monday purchased all of troubled First Republic Bank's deposits and most of its assets after regulators seized it in an effort to head off further U.S. banking turmoil. J.P. Morgan will take on $173 billion worth of loans and $30 billion worth of securities and $92 billion in deposits, but not First Republic's corporate debt or preferred stock. J.P. Morgan said it would recognize a one-off $2.6 billion gain and expected a $500 million a year increase in net income. The Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, agreed to share losses on mortgages and commercial loans that J.P. Morgan assumed in the transaction and also provided with a $50 billion credit line. The bank will make a $10.6 billion payment to the FDIC. First Republic is the third U.S. bank to collapse in recent months, joining Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The San Francisco-based lender's shares plummeted last week after it admitted that customers had withdrawn $100 billion in March. First Republic reportedly couldn't withstand losing 40% of its deposits in the first quarter of 2023 because 60% of its deposits were uninsured by the FDIC. A $30 billion infusion from 11 peer banks in mid-March also didn't help. J.P. Morgan, the largest bank in the U.S., outbid PNC and Citizens, which submitted final bid Sunday in an auction by U.S. regulators. J.P. Morgan already holds more than 10% of the nation's total bank deposits, and analysts say deposits would increase by 3% as a result of the deal. All right, Eric, thanks for those facts. We have some narrative spins on this story. Narrative A comes from Better Markets. This situation is another example of the consolidation of wealth in the U.S., and only the largest banks can play the game. Instead of regulators and executives looking for band-aid solutions to serious problems, they should be enhancing and executing regulations to avoid these crises. This deal is a disservice to the country. Investors gives us narrative B for this story. J.P. Morgan has saved the day again. With panic causing a major dip in the stock market, the bank was able to buy First Republic and help avert another SVB-like crisis. Anyone with an interest in the economy should be thankful J.P. Morgan cleaned up the mess. You know the old saying, Eric, if I uh, owe you $100, that's my problem. If I owe you $100 billion, I guess that's everybody's problem. Absolutely. By the way, I'll I'll get that 100 bucks for you next week. (laughs) (laughs) Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org slash pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. 
Turkey claims that IS's leader is killed in Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TRT World, Al Jazeera, BBC News, France 24, AA of Turkey, and Bloomberg. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan claimed on Sunday that the alleged Islamic State group leader Abu Hussein al-Kuryashi was killed in an operation by Turkey's intelligence agency in Syria. In an interview with Turkish TV, Erdogan announced that al-Kuryashi had been neutralized as a result of the intelligence agency's continued efforts to track down the IS leader and vowed that Ankara would continue its fight against any terrorist threat. According to local and Syrian sources, the operation was carried out near Jinderes, a northern Syrian town controlled by Turkish-backed rebel groups. Citing local residents, AFP reported that an abandoned farm used as an Islamic school had been targeted. IS hadn't yet confirmed the death of Abu Hussein al-Khoriashi, who took over the group in November 2022 after the death of his predecessor, Abu al-Hassan al-Hashemi al-Khoriashi who the U.S. claimed was killed by the Free Syrian Army in southwestern Syria last October. More than 300 people have reportedly been killed and hundreds more injured in Turkey in at least 10 suicide blasts, seven bombings, and four armed attacks by IS over the past decade, prompting Turkish counterterrorism operations. Erdogan's announcement came as he returned to the campaign trail in Istanbul on Saturday after several days of illness ahead of the May 14 national polls that are expected to be his biggest political challenge after 20 years in power. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. Our first spin is Narrative A, and it comes from Turkish Minute. For Erdogan to brag on his return to the campaign trail that Turkey killed Al-Khwarashi and invoked the fight against terrorism is hypocritical at best, given that it was Erdogan's Turkey that fueled the rise of jihadists in Syria in the first place. Ankara has used Islamists and rebel groups for its campaign against U.S.-backed Kurdish forces and for its strategic goal of toppling the Assad regime. As a result, however, Erdogan's hubris has undermined not only regional stability, but also Turkey's national security. And narrative B comes from Daily Sabah. While Turkey's killing of the IS leader is further evidence of how serious Ankara is about fighting terrorism, Washington continues to support Kurdish terrorists under the guise of fighting IS, thereby jeopardizing Turkey's national security. However, this will not prevent Ankara from continuing to fight terrorism without distinction, which benefits not only regional security, but ultimately European security as well. This is one of Erdogan's great achievements, and Turks can be proud of their country and their leader. The Metaculous Prediction community is giving us a nerd narrative for this story. They say there's a 77% chance that Erdogan will abdicate the presidency if he loses the 2023 presidential election. In our next story, Texas police search for a shooter who killed five. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, NBC, ABC News, CNN, and Guardian. A widening manhunt for a Texas gunman who fatally shot five neighbors including a nine-year-old boy, continued on Monday, as the FBI says it has no leads. The suspect, identified as 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa, is believed to have fled the country and is considered armed and dangerous, authorities say. The FBI previously spelled the suspect's last name as Oropesa, but released an updated spelling as Oropesa on Sunday to better reflect his identity in law enforcement systems. Police said they believe the massacre occurred after neighbors asked the suspect to stop shooting his gun in the front yard because of a baby trying to sleep. The suspect, believed to be intoxicated, soon went to the neighbor's home where he shot and killed five people, execution style. 
More than 200 officers from multiple law enforcement agencies are searching for Oropesa. An $80,000 reward is being offered for information that leads to the suspect's arrest. The victims have been identified as Daniel Enrique Lasso, age 9, Sonia Argentina Guzman, age 25, Diana Velasquez Alvarado, age 21, Julissa Molina Rivera, age 31, and Jose Jonathan Ceceres, age 18. All the victims were believed to be from Honduras. As he announced a reward for the capture of the suspect, Texas Governor Greg Abbott described the shooter as well as those he allegedly murdered as illegal immigrants. The local sheriff, Greg Capers of San Jacinto, responded by saying the immigration status of the victims was irrelevant to the investigators. Thanks, Eric, for that update on this manhunt. We have a democratic narrative from MSNBC. Abbott's disgusting xenophobic rhetoric is just an attempt to deflect from the role Republican lawmakers played in shaping Texas's woeful gun laws. The GOP has created an unsafe environment for residents of the state. Breitbart gives us a Republican narrative. The immigration status of the suspect and victims is a valid point for Abbott to bring up. Somehow, an illegal immigrant was able to get access to a gun and brutally massacre five people, including a child. Every possible angle of this tragic case should be scrutinized. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict that there's a 1% chance that the Second Amendment of the United States Constitution will be amended or repealed before the year 2025. The Pope says that the Vatican is involved in a Russia-Ukraine peace mission. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, the Associated Press, Fox News, Catholic News Agency, and CNN. On Sunday, Pope Francis said the Vatican was engaged in a secret peace mission in an attempt to bring an end to the Russia-Ukraine war. I am willing to do everything that has to be done, the Pope said aboard the papal plane following a three-day visit to Hungary. I think that peace is always made by opening channels. You can never achieve peace through closure. The Pope added that he would do all that is humanly possible to reunite families amid allegations Russia has illegally deported Ukrainian children from Ukraine. All human gestures help. Gestures of cruelty don't help, Francis said. This comes after Ukraine's Prime Minister Denis Shimhal met the Pope at the Vatican on Thursday seeking help in getting back children taken by force by Russia and finding ways to restore peace, including a proposed plan put forward by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. In September, the Pope, who has repeatedly criticized Russia throughout the war, was involved in a prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine, involving nearly 300 people, including 215 Ukrainians and 55 Russians and pro-Moscow Ukrainians. Pope Francis has often appealed for dialogue between Russia and Ukraine since the conflict started. However, he allegedly refers to Ukrainians as people who are martyred and once previously labeled the Chechens and Buryats, Russian ethnic minority groups, the cruelest fighters operating in Ukraine. Thank you for the facts, Scott. The first spin is Narrative A, coming from Vatican News. Pope Francis has explicitly condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine and made countless appeals to end the war. Since the Pope has previously engaged in a number of prisoner swaps and negotiations, his latest attempt to reconcile Russia and Ukraine is significant. It could bring positive results in ending an absurd and cruel war. And narrative B comes from Jerusalem Post. The Pope has repeatedly offered to mediate a peace process throughout the conflict to no avail. So what's different to make us believe his efforts would succeed this time? Moreover, when he describes the war as Russian expansionism and imperialism, and he holds the Ukrainian flag, it's clear which side of the conflict he sides with. 
And there's a nerd narrative that says there's a 50% chance the Catholic Church will elect a new pope by April 2025. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. News coming from Paraguay as Santiago Peña wins the election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Barron's, New York Times, CNBC, France 24, and Breitbart. Economist and former finance minister under President Horacio Cartes, Santiago Peña has won Paraguay's general election, continuing the conservative Colorado Party's seven-decade-long reign. He defeated Efrain Elegrem of the left-wing Concertation Coalition by 15%. The Concertation Coalition received roughly 27.5% of the vote after having led in opinion polls, with the left-wing loss going against the recent trend of anti-incumbency, left-wing wins in Latin America. Pena has said he will create 500,000 jobs, offer free kindergarten, decrease fuel and energy prices, and put more police officers on the street. To achieve this, he said Paraguay, which has a poverty rate of 25%, must eliminate red tape and keep taxes among the lowest in the world. In opposition to Allegrem, Pena pledged to remain in alliance with Taiwan over China. With that, he now faces the challenges of boosting Paraguay's farm-driven economy shrinking a major fiscal deficit, and navigating rising pressures from soy and beef producers to tilt away from Taiwan in favor of China. In another contentious foreign relations rift, Pena has also said he would move Paraguay's embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. On social issues, he defends his anti-abortion and anti-gay marriage stances, beliefs he calls traditional family values. Alongside Pena, who won 43% of votes with almost all votes counted in the preliminary round, the Colorado Party won 15 of the 17 governorships up for election and received majorities in both the Senate and the lower house. All right, we have some left and right narrative spins on this political story. Let's start with the left spin from The Guardian. A win for the Colorado Party continues the failed status quo of Paraguay. After its 35-year dictatorship, the Colorado Party, which played a role in the nation's authoritarian past, took power and has been bankrolling its government through the personal wealth of Horatio Cartes. Though the two campaigns differed on little other than the Taiwan issue, it's likely that Peña will continue to be beholden to the corrupt system held in place since 1989. The right narrative comes from Breitbart. Though the world has some difficulty with the Cartes presidency, Peña is a fresh face with an eagerness to build Paraguay's standing in the world. This is why the U.S., as well as neighbors like Brazil, congratulated the winner and told him they look forward to working with him. Pena offered similar economic promises to Allegrem, and the Taiwan issue shouldn't be that controversial given its 60-year relationship with Paraguay and shared democratic principles. Eric, there's a Mexican restaurant in Seattle, hashtag not an ad, called Fogon. It's in the Capitol Hill neighborhood on Broadway, and they make a chili Colorado. Like, for real, it's like my favorite meal of, like, all meals. It makes me want to book a plane ticket right now. Let's go. I love chili Colorado. It's basically just, what if chili was just big squares of meat, and that's it? Yum. (laughs) So it's it's the best part. Sounds delish. Yeah. Jordan hosts Arab Normalization Talks with Syria. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, The National, Al Monitor, and The Times of Israel. Jordan hosted a landmark meeting between Syria, Egypt, Iraq, and Saudi Arabia in Amman on Monday, as the Arab countries consider normalizing ties with Damascus, which has been diplomatically isolated by the Arab world since 2011, following anti-government protests and the onset of civil war. Joint talks between top diplomats from the five nations began after an initial meeting, between Jordan's foreign minister and his Syrian counterpart, 
Besides discussing Syria's potential return to the Arab fold, including the possibility of Syria being invited to the Arab League summit later this month, a political solution to Syria's conflict was also reportedly discussed. Jordan has called on Damascus to engage with Arab states jointly on a step-by-step basis to end the country's long-running civil war, addressing the return of refugees, drug smuggling, detainees in Syrian prisons, and Iran-backed militias that operate within the country. Though the track toward Arab normalization with Syria has moved steadily in recent years, drug trafficking is a massive outstanding issue. Saudi Arabia and other regional states accuse the Syrian government and security forces of running a massive illicit drug empire in the region. Damascus denies this accusation. The most vocal opponent against normalization with Syria has been Qatar, which has stated that the reasons for Syria's isolation haven't been resolved, with Qatari Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Abdulrahman Al-Taini saying recently that the war has stopped but Syrian people are still displaced. There are innocent people in prisons. There are many things. The talks come as a number of major developments have occurred in the Middle East, including the February earthquake that struck Syria and Turkey, and the Chinese brokered announcement in March that Iran and Saudi Arabia, who've backed opposing sides and conflicts across the region, including Syria, would work toward resuming ties. Those were the facts, and the first spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Middle East Eye. It's no surprise that Arab dictatorships, which are some of the most brutal authoritarian regimes in the world, are rushing to rehabilitate Bashar al-Assad's dictatorship in Syria. Though Assad butchered his own people with barrel bombs and chemical weapons, now that supporting the opposition to his rule is not politically expedient, the Gulf monarchies are more than happy to bring him back to the Arab fold. And the establishment critical narrative comes from Al-Mayadeen. Imperialist forces in the region, namely the U.S., are trying to sabotage Syria's return to the Arab fold. But the path to normalization seems quite certain at this point. Though the West, alongside its regional cronies in the Gulf, has waged war against Syria and Assad's government, it's time to move past this and look to the future in a multipolar world order that's not dictated by the whims of the West. Al-Arabia gives us a cynical narrative for this story. It's obvious that Assad is a criminal and a butcher. But the West's strategies have borne no fruit in terms of ending the conflict. Ultimately, after 12 years of war, Assad, alongside Russian and Iranian support, has essentially defeated the opposition, and it's time to allow for his regime to re-enter the Arab fold, regardless of how the U.S. feels about it. Syria, though, a brotherly nation, will likely be held at arm's length for the foreseeable future nonetheless. In tech news, UK chip giant ARM files for US share listing. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Engadget, Times Now, Reuters, The Economic Times, and Bay Street. British microchip firm ARM has officially filed to sell its shares in the US, having stated in March this year that it did not plan to list its shares in London. The press release published on Saturday stated that SoftBank-owned ARM had recently confidentially submitted a draft F-1 form to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission to hold an initial public offering later this year. ARM has been called the crown jewel of the U.K.'s technology sector, and the desire for the company's share listing to stay in the U.K. fueled reports in January this year that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak himself had been in talks with SoftBank. ARM will reportedly be seeking to raise between $8 billion and $10 billion on NASDAQ, although ARM said it has not determined the price range or size of the offering. SoftBank has remained insistent on pushing forward with the IPO, 
Despite such U.S. listings down approximately 22% at $2.35 billion in the year to date, according to DealLogic. SoftBank had previously agreed to sell ARM to chip designer NVIDIA for $40 billion, with the deal collapsing due to antitrust regulator concerns. All right, thanks for that tech news, Eric. We have a narrative A from City AM. The decision to bail on London's market in favor of the U.S. is a major blow to the U.K. when considering that ARM's initial public offering will be one of the largest of 2023. The decision is part of a wider move by British-based companies to ditch the UK for overseas markets. This is not a good sign for future trends. Go Trading Asia gives us narrative B for this story. The decision by ARM is a sign that the global initial public offering market is beginning to recover. While the US remains concerned over a recession, decisions by major companies to attract major public funding worldwide, especially in Asia, is a good sign for the global economy overall. Yeah, ARM's a big deal. All the uh, I'm using a, an Apple M2 chip computer right now, and those are all ARM chips. They're, they're, they're big time. Scott, you're a big time. <laughs> <laughs> a New York gun buyback program nets over 3,000 firearms. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by the Niagara Gazette, The Hill, New York Post, ABC News, and The Guardian. Over 3,000 firearms in New York State were exchanged for gift cards over the weekend as part of a gun buyback program organized by the state attorney general's office. New Yorkers could turn in guns with no questions asked at nine locations across the state. Participants received $500 for assault-style rifles and untraceable ghost guns, $75 for other rifles, and $25 for non-working replicas, antiques, or 3D-printed guns. Handgun owners received $500 for the first handgun and $150 for each additional one. Attorney General Letitia James stated that every single one of these guns represents a potential tragedy averted. Over 751 guns were returned in Syracuse, a state record, and over 90 were returned at a single location in Brooklyn. The buyback program is one of many initiatives James has taken against gun violence in New York. Since 2019, more than 7,000 guns have been removed from communities throughout the state. Syracuse has seen a 133% jump in homicides this year, with Mayor Ben Walsh saying, Our federal government is abdicating their responsibility to ensure that guns are being handled safely, amidst a spate of high-profile gun violence cases nationwide. While James hailed the buyback as a vital development, some jurisdictions in the state opted out due to skepticism over the effectiveness of buyback programs, with Delaware County Sheriff Craig Dumond stating that the effect on public safety is minimal. Scott, thanks for the facts of that story. The first narrative is coming from the official website of the New York governor. New York should be applauded for being a national leader in preventing gun violence. Fewer guns on the street mean fewer tragic and senseless deaths, as the state works towards making a real difference in the fight against gun crime. The gun buyback initiative will pay dividends down the road, as fewer guns are at risk of falling into the wrong hands. And the right narrative comes from Fee Stories. Anti-gun politicians love their gun buyback events because it gives them a chance to mesmerize the public through photos of scary-looking weapons laid out on a table. In reality, however, the U.S.'s own National Bureau of Economic Research has found that these programs don't broadly reduce gun crime or violent crime. Moreover, these ineffective programs, if implemented nationwide, would cost taxpayers tens of billions of dollars or more, all that expense for no benefit to public safety. And Metaculous Prediction Community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 50% chance that there will be at least 1.40 small firearms per capita in the USA by 2029. 
Scott, this is the time that I wish I was a New York State resident. I've got this huge bag of water guns that I could cash in. Huge bag of water? What, Eric, why do you have a huge bag of water guns? What's going on? <laughs> You're either having a lot of fun or no fun at all. I'm not sure. Wake me up when they're doing a water balloon buyback. <laughs> okay. In a special report, Epstein's contacts included a CIA chief. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Wall Street Journal, The Times, Insider, Fox News, and New York Post. According to a Wall Street Journal report, Jeffrey Epstein's private calendar shows he met with a number of high-profile individuals after he was convicted as a sex offender, including political activist Noam Chomsky and CIA chief William Burns. The meetings were scheduled between 2013 and 2019 after Epstein served time in jail in 2008 for a sex crime involving a teenage girl. The purpose of most of the meetings remains unclear, but many prominent people claim they visited Epstein for donations and to make powerful connections. The new documents show Chomsky was scheduled to fly with Epstein, who reportedly donated at least $850,000 between 2002 and 2017 to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where Chomsky taught for decades, for a planned dinner with film director Woody Allen in 2015. A spokesperson for Burns, who has headed the CIA since 2021, confirmed the U.S. spy chief met with Epstein a decade ago when he was the Deputy Secretary of State in 2014, adding, quote, the director did not know anything about him at the time beyond his expertise in finance. Other prominent figures on the list include former President Barack Obama's White House counsel Catherine Rumler, Bard College President Leon Botstein, former co-chief executive of Kissinger Associates Joshua Cooper Ramo, and banker Arianne de Rothschild. Meanwhile, none of these figures appear in Epstein's black book of contacts or flight logs of passengers who traveled on his private jet. The Wall Street Journal could neither verify if each scheduled meeting actually took place nor reveal the purpose of the meetings. All right, spicy stuff there, Eric. We have an establishment-critical narrative from the Daily Mail. A repeat offender, Epstein had been accused of sexually abusing girls in Florida for years, some as young as 14 years old. Despite his conviction and death, questions remain about who in his famous circle of friends and associates may have done illegal things under his shadow. This list of high-profile individuals raises new questions surrounding Epstein's alleged suicide and the possibility he was murdered because of who he had dirt on. Insider gives us a pro-establishment narrative. The meetings reportedly occurred when Epstein had been sentenced for a crime, served his sentence, and wiped the slate clean according to U.S. law and norms. Since the political elite and business leaders thought Epstein had been rehabilitated and maintained their connections with him were purely professional, there is nothing suspicious about the revelation or reason to rehash old conspiracy theories. I mean, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If the leader of the CIA knew who Epstein was, that's not good that he was going. But if he didn't, he's the head of the CIA. He has no intelligence on this guy. Come on. Is it disturbing to you that your name is on some of the island guest lists that they found? Listen, I just I just love to surf, man. I'm, is, I'm there is for that the what waves. The, is that what that was about? Yeah. Just the surfing? Okay. Yeah. Just it's it's the love, <laughs> love of the ocean. I'm one with the waves. You're one with the waves. <laughs> okay. <laughs> European organizations call for research into racism's health impact. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Nature, the Lancet Digital Health, and the European Public Health Alliance. A network of health organizations and three members of the European Parliament signed a statement last month calling for the European Commission to recognize racism as a key factor that can negatively affect health. They urged for prioritization of the issue for research funding. 
The network, known as DISCO, is run under the umbrella of the European Health Alliance. It prioritized five areas to focus on, including equality data, fostering diversity in society, clarifying terms related to racism, and strengthening EU anti-discrimination laws. DISCO also mentions the use of intersectionality, arguing that data should be disaggregated by identities such as race, ethnicity, sex characteristics, gender, sexual orientation, and disability to study the impact of interconnected discrimination. Most studies on the health impacts of racism are conducted in the U.S., and unlike in the U.S. and U.K., many European nations don't routinely collect health or other data disaggregated by race and ethnicity. This comes as the medical journal The Lancet found last year that as macro-level systems and ideologies spread throughout all of society, it eventually impacts racial minorities disproportionately in the health data sector. Alongside groups such as the Center for Global Health Inequalities Research, Mental Health Europe, and the European AIDS Treatment Group, members of Parliament Miguel Urban Crespo, Milan Bergles, and Romeo Franz also signed the letter. Scott, thank you for the facts of that story. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from the European Journal of Public Health. European countries know they have a racism problem in their healthcare systems, but structural discrimination has yet to end due to little public debate on the issue. Racial disparities in healthcare are downstream of economic and social inequality more broadly, but nothing will change until the continent's leaders acknowledge the rampant disregard for racial minorities and its dangerous impact on physical health. And Newsweek brings us the right narrative spin. This is a class problem, not a race problem. Western left-wing politicians and activists constantly drum up conflicts based on identity politics. Nothing will change if this trend continues. The deeper roots of healthcare system issues should be addressed ahead of pandering to woke ideologies. Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Tuesday, May 2nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information on Improve the News, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace... I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.